to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today we're talking to cartoonist Jessica Campbell about rave. Jessica Campbell is a Canadian artist originally from Victoria, British Columbia. Her fine art has been exhibited across North America and in 2019 she had a solo exhibit at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. An educator of comics, art, and history, Campbell has taught at a variety of institutions including the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. She is the author of the graphic novels Hot or Not, 20th Century Male Artists, and XCC69. Uh, About rave. It's the early 2000s. Lauren is 15, soft-spoken, and ashamed of her body. She's a devout member of an evangelical church, but when her Bible-thumping parents forbid Lauren to bring evolution textbooks home, she opts to study at her schoolmate Mariah's house. Mariah has dial-up internet, an absentee mom, and a Wiccan altar the perfect setting for a study session and sleepover to remember. That evening, Mariah gives Lauren a makeover and the two melt into each other in what becomes Lauren's first queer encounter. Afterward, a potent blend of Christian guilt and internalized homophobia causes Lauren to question the experience. Um, Rave is an instant classic, a coming of age story about the secret spaces young women create and the wider social structures that fail them. Hi, Jess. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so right off the bat, I'd like to ask you about the epigraph, uh, in which you quote Pat Robertson. Uh, he says, feminism is a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism and become lesbians. Yeah. Why did you choose to open (laughs) rave with this, with this? I mean, if ever there was an advertisement, a glowing uh, um, endorsement of feminism, I think that's it. Um, I, I, I chose it. I chose to start the book with that because um, see, Pat Robertson. So Pat Robertson is a famed televangelist. Recently died. R.I.P. Uh, no, not R.I.P. Uh, uh, <laughs> so sincere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, he's this kind of like very prominent like uh, figure in the Christian right in the United States. He had a mentor, this guy named Harold Bredesen, who was kind of like a proto-televangelist, like, uh, and he went around planting seed churches throughout North America, and he was actually really instrumental in starting or at least like forming the identity of the church that I went to growing up in Victoria. Um, so he was the pastor of the church like in the 1970s, 80s, before before my family went there. Um, and I think that uh, Pat Robertson also is like, like a notorious kind of... Um, I don't know, just like horrifying bigot who would say like really fucked up things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, that kind of um, uh, I don't, polarizing language is really, uh, I think, indicative of or like um, very similar to some of the uh, the attitudes of the church that I grew up in that I think I was trying to replicate or, or demonstrate in the text of Rave. Um, so it felt like a really relevant c- quote. I think also as like as a feminist and as a you know a 
feminist practitioner, someone who's like trying to make feminist work, it felt really relevant. Uh, for, in my mind, that's kind of like the central conceit of the book is just talking about these like fundamental contradictions between like equal rights, women's rights, uh, you know, gender parody and um, uh, the attitude of the church. Your main character has a unibrow. Why? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I am, um, you know, the, I, so the book is not like strictly autobiographical, though lots of it is drawn from my own experience and the experiences of the people I grew up with. Um, uh, and and it's sort of like a, that in particular is kind of like an exaggerated, uh, you know, version of my own experience where I had not quite a unibrow, but like really thick eyebrows and remember in junior high. So you have to imagine, imagine it's the 90s, right? <laughs> Uh, and and like the trend is like the single hair width eyebrow. Oh yeah. Uh, and um, which I'm sure will I mean it's it's coming right as as the Gen Gen Z Gen Z uh, fetishizes increasingly everything from the 90s. I'm sure the eyebrows they're coming for the eyebrows eventually. Um, uh, so like that's the trend, and I had very thick kind of like heavy eyebrows, and I remember a, a girl in school who was very intimidating was like if you don't start plucking your eyebrows I'm gonna like pin you down and and pluck them in class uh, like it was just like so outrageous to her that I had kind of ungroomed eyebrows um, and so Lauren's eyebrows are sort of like based off of that and then also I was like totally incompetent and I was like I tried plucking and I was like, this is so painful. Surely this is not what everyone is doing all the time because like this sucks. And so then I tried shaving them, but I was like, couldn't figure out whether you should shave, whether you should pluck the bottom parts of the eyebrows or the top. And so I sort of shaved down the top. So they had this very bad kind of stepped shape to them. Uh, it was rough, man. It was rough. And then the internet didn't exist. So you're like, how do you even find this stuff out? You know, you're just, it's kind of trial and error. Terrible. I begged my mom to take me to like a Desi salon. I too had a unibrow mm. and mm -hmm. I did the threading thing. Oh, um, very, became, very Oh yeah. I mean, not great, but like I became addicted to it in the way mm. that like a young teen mind would. Cause mm. the second there was like an extra hair, I was like too mm. much, too much. They're going to make fun of me again. Mm. Um, and then I overplucked and now I'm stuck with this, which is oh. life and fine, but okay. Um, so there, so yours, yours didn't grow back fully. Ever. Mine did not grow back, and yeah. like, what a lesson to learn for the young people listening today. Be be careful what you do with your eyebrows. If you think you might want thick eyebrows ever again, don't overthread them now uh -huh. at your young age. Uh huh. Also, know that like how you look in your teens is like just not how you're going to look forever like yeah, yeah. for everyone so if someone's <laughs> making fun of you don't be like yeah. this is the way that I am Ugh, but know. it's so painful like when you're a teenager I don't know I just feel like I'm so grateful not to be a teenager anymore I mm -hmm. feel like so much more comfortable with myself and then mm -hmm. yeah and if I do something embarrassing or whatever it's like oh it's not that big of a deal but somehow I don't know when you're that age like not fitting in or like having the wrong eyebrows is like so crushing. I know, I know. And because it's like, I can like, it's, I feel it in the past, but even just like talking about it with you, I remember like how hot my body would feel at like the criticism of others, like the shame of it all. I mean, mm -hmm. um, shame being a pivotal, pivotal uh, focus in rave. Um, yeah. 
and you know it specifically ties shame into extremist uh, religious views uh, it's obviously highlighting like the negative qualities of shames in the same way that you and I were like just talking about but I sort of do wonder it's something that I think about all the time um, do you think there's a way that shame benefits us I don't know. It sounds like you have thoughts about that. <laughs> I, what, what, Damn like, it, Jess. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm curious what you, I mean, I, I can think about it um, for sure. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day because there's like someone I sort of work with. Um, uh, or I was just talking to someone about this man that I've worked with over the years who I really like, but he, um, let's see, how do I put this? He's like quite, um, irritable maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so, and, and like, yeah, he's quite a curmudgeon. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so if people, I really respect him a lot. I think he's really smart. He's like wonderful to work with in a lot of ways, but if someone, he'll be kind of rude to people sometimes. And then he has said to me in the past, I'm only rude to stupid people or like people acting stupid, mm-hmm. um, which to me feels like incredibly arrogant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder, I, I don't know, like, I wonder if, like, a little bit of shame kind of, like, forces some humility or something that might help you to empathize with other people mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you think about shame? No, that's literally where I was getting at, too. It's, yeah. In fact, I think it's, like, Zadie uh, Smith, she talked about it once in an interview, and it really struck me. Um, you know, shame is a good thing for people like bigots mm-hmm. and racists <laughs> and sexists. You should mm-hmm. be shamed to mm-hmm. be you know, uh, identifying uh, as like a xenophobe, like mm-hmm. in that way, I think shame can be a beneficial thing. Shame sort of keeps us in line. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like we could all be acting a lot more ruder, as you just pointed mm-hmm. out, um, and generally shittier, but we try to, we're, shame like keeps us at bay. Yeah. There's a, the funny thing, like, so I've been living in the States. I just relocated back to Canada and I feel like in the States there's I mean, it's still, it exists here, the kind of a culture war phenomenon, I think, increasingly exists everywhere, maybe, but it's, like, quite pronounced in the States and, like, quite pronounced in the Midwest where I was living. Uh, and you just hear things like um, Marjorie Taylor Greene a few months ago said that calling white people racist is the equivalent to calling a black person the N-word. And I was yeah. like, those things are not, those things are not the same, dude. And, like, uh, there is this sort of, like, um, extreme reaction I think to being shamed in any way or like the the kind of backlash like Mm -hmm. using cancel culture as a dog whistle or something for instance feels really um uh like this very extreme reaction to shame but I think you're right that it is this very important tool societally but then also like internally as a way of kind of like regulating your behavior um but then also, like, should we feel ashamed because our eyebrows are, like, too thick or too, too thin? No, mm-hmm. that's, like... Uh, or that um, horny as teenagers. Yeah, like, right, right. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, in Rave, it's almost like the church could benefit from a level of shame that they themselves, mm-hmm. um, you know, put onto others. Mm-hmm. Um, was Jesus the original raver? <laughs> was Jesus the original raver? Uh, yeah, I I uh, I don't know. Like I so in the '90s and early aughts, there when rave culture was kind of, I guess it was maybe waning already at that point, but like popular, uh, there were evangelical raves like the the one I depict in the book. I definitely those are the only raves I was allowed to go to were the the Christian ones. They weren't fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and so I, I like, 
for that scene. I mean, I don't know that anyone ever said that explicitly. I did find some like pastor on like YouTube channel that I watched to get the cadence right because it's like such a weird specific way of speaking that mm -hmm. those guys speak. It's like very trance-like and and kind of like repetitive. Um, I do think there is this sort of, um, I mean, as a teacher, I kind of like relate to this, but there's this thing that pastors and youth pastors do where they try to like pander, you mm -hmm. know, to, to the youngs. And so they're like, oh, you're into raves. Yeah. Jesus was into raves too. Or like, whatever's cool. You know, they try to relate it back to the Bible, um, which I, which I understand on some level, you want to make it feel like relevant, mm -hmm. uh, um, I mean, Jesus was like into wine, right? He was into partying. He's hanging out with sex workers and like, you know, flipping over money lending tables and and making wine. And uh, he he seems like he seems kind of cool, you know. I think he would be like Antifa or something if he was around today. <laughs> I think he was like a nice guy, just walking around, being like, everyone chill, everyone get along, everyone love each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. Like, it blew up in his face. Um, Yes, it did. It, yeah. Spoiler alert. Indulge me as uh, like a Muslim. I, I have no idea what a Christian rave mm. is like. Tell me what, why it's not fun. Mm. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, like, so like there's no drugs or maybe there are, <laughs> but there weren't any that were being offered to me, certainly. And the ones I went to, there would be like some like kind of pastors or it would be like in a big auditorium or I don't know, big like, um, hall or wherever and then there'd be like some kind of like pastor giving a talk first um somewhere like a church service followed by a dance party and mm -hmm. i went to one once that i remember there was like i can't remember everything that happened at it but there was like a, a lot of footage from of like child soldiers in mm -hmm. i don't know in somalia or something and because there was some kind of like missions program they were trying to like raise money for or something. Uh, and it was just like a lot of like really harrowing images, I remember. And then after that, there was like a big dance party, which maybe just played Christian music. I don't know, it's so lame. You didn't miss out, Trudy. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't think I did, but like, mm -hmm. at least the rave depicted in your scene looks debaucherous. But mm -hmm. I realized that, that that was like a commentary that you were making of, um, you know, kids are going to do what kids are going to do, no matter mm -hmm. what kind of parties you throw at them. Mm -hmm. um, your vignettes often, like, meditate on a single moment with, like, six panels will be dedicated mm -hmm. to a single facial exchange or thought process. Mm -hmm. um, it's very slowed down. I would say you do that consistently through all of your books that I've read. Um, mm -hmm. what, why is that? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I kind of... So I... In making XTC 69, I felt like uh, the previous book, I felt like the pacing was like a little bit too fast. And so for this book, I really wanted to, to kind of like slow things down. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, was there, I did make a sort of concerted effort to kind of uh, um, add in more, I don't know, like visual moments that kind of like slow down the pace of the read. Um, I think a lot of it is done for like tone. So there's like one scene, for instance, where Lauren is waiting for a phone call mm -hmm. from Mariah, which is like, uh, you know, I didn't have a cell phone 
I got a cell phone in 2012, which is like really late for, you know, which is late. Uh, (laughs) I know, but it's still, I mean, I've had one for like 10 years now, Um, but I spent a lot, I've spent many, many, many hours of my life, even much too late into my adulthood, sitting by the phone, hoping that the person I want to call will call and, and not having them call. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt like the best way to kind of indicate that experience was to show, you know, images of Lauren sitting in this chair, kind of like moving around the light, uh, dimming outside as she just like waits and hopes for, for this person to call. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that was more, you know, that just seemed like the most effective way of like demonstrating that versus saying, uh, boy, I really wish she'd call. It's been six hours and, and I'm still sitting here or something. It felt more powerful to show it visually. Mm-hmm. The anxiety and the agony. Mm-hmm. I, I've read in interviews too that you like sort of, you know, taking this approach to this book, you talk to other cartoonists about sort of their methodology and about editing. And uh, you talk to Nick, Nick DiNarso. I adore him um, and I adore his work. Um, and he's sim- he has a similar he has a similar sort of style where it's just like panned in on like a facial expression over time. Mm. It's really anxious to read. And I I get that it's like communicating anxiety, but it also Mm. just makes you anxious as a reader. Mm. Um, Would you agree? Well, I don't know exactly what the experience is like as a reader. I'm like a, as time goes on, I realize like I'm a very, very anxious person, (laughs) uh, which I, it's taken me a long time to realize, but it's like in therapy and stuff being like, yeah, I just feel like I want to peel all of my skin off, you know? And then my therapist was like, oh, that sounds like extreme anxiety. And I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. But I think, um, I think I am a really anxious person, and uh, so it, it makes sense that it would come through in the work in mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. I definitely did, like, conversations with Nick Adronasso and Anya Davidson is the other cartoonist mm-hmm. who I think I had important conversations with about working methods. Um, because I, like, I worked for Drawn and Quarterly. Uh, mm-hmm. um, you and I both worked different at different times, but we mm-hmm. both worked there. Uh, and in working there, you get to work with all these amazing cartoonists. Like, I remember working with Linda Berry or Chris Ware, and mm-hmm. neither of them script out their work. They just kind of, I think... Chris has like an idea of where the story is going, but at least the way he tells it, he like puts pen to paper and starts drawing. And likewise with Linda, like she just starts drawing and, and it comes out perfect or, you know, amazing. Uh, And so I think being in that environment, I was like, okay, this is like how they do it. This is how like a real artist does it. You just kind of like, you just like put it out there. But I noticed for me that it wasn't getting quite to where I wanted it to be. And then I talked, I really loved Sabrina by, mm-hmm. by Nick Trinasso. Uh, and I also really loved this book by Anya Davidson called Lovers in the Garden. Uh, and I think that it, that was at that point, at least that it came out her strongest work. And so in talking to both of them, I found out that they both scripted their workout in advance. Uh, and I adopted that strategy because it also like the other benefit is that it adds in this other layer of editing Mm -hmm. where it's like super hard to edit comics, but you can edit text really easily. So you can kind of plan things out earlier. And I think it helped a lot working that way Mm -hmm. for me. Um, so I know you to be, as you pointed out, we've, we've met before, we know each mm-hmm. other, and I know you to be someone with a really great sense of humor. Um, so I sort of didn't expect such a heavy moment in the plot mm-hmm. uh, of this book. Um, 
I guess my question is something that I ask cartoonists a lot of the time, but um, what do you think people misunderstand about the graphic novel form? I'm thinking of the ways it sometimes criticizes like unserious art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, certainly. I think that um, people think of it as like frivolous and kind of stupid. And um, wait, to quote Seth, uh, the history of cartooning is a history of mediocrity, predominantly <laughs> a history of mediocrity, which I think is kind of true. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I, there's a lot of like, kind of like titty jokes and stuff in the history of comics, <laughs> even like these great cartoonists, like, like, I don't know, Peter Arno or something, or the New Yorker, you look at like old New Yorker cartoons and they're just like, so, uh, I don't know, like stupid, vulgar <laughs> jokes. And I think it's like kind of baked into the history of like western comics uh modern comics um and like slapstick there's like this huge relationship between early comics newspaper comics and vaudeville and like kind of like slapstick comedy and and kind of maybe unserious uh forms then of course like the comics code in the 1950s really impacted what kind of material is being published so it was like quite um I don't know, declawed and work that was made a lot more for kids and superheroes and stuff. And so I think that that has really impacted the perception of the medium and and also like a lot of the work that's been produced kind of like falls in those categories. Uh, and so, but that is not um, indicative of like what the medium is capable of doing. Mm -hmm. Just words and pictures and sequence and you can kind of like you know, there's like, it's sort of unlimited what one could do with it, or there, you know, there's a huge range of possibilities. Um, so I, I guess like that's um, kind of one thing. I also think there that maybe the pendulum has sort of switched in or like gone completely in the other direction, sometimes like to, to the detriment of the medium, or it's like, um, societal perception. I'm thinking specifically of like how comics have been adopted into academia and uh, people only want like really serious, you know, in nonfiction, like the kind of counterpoint to this frivolous history of the medium is like writing about the Holocaust, writing about like, you know, the mm -hmm. Iranian revolution and like books like Mouse and Persepolis are amazing and important. But uh, I think if you're only willing to look at work that's like kind of counteracting the frivolity of the medium with a super heavy subject matter, then there's a lot of great material that falls through the cracks. Like Nick Tronasso's book or like Chris Ware or like Linda Berry or all these people who I think are some of the best practitioners in the field or Julie Doucet or something. Mm -hmm. um, their work is like, it doesn't fall into those categories. And so what does that mean that like they're not seen as serious even though like I think they're doing work that's really really innovative and powerful or Ben Catcher's another great example like mm. Ben Catcher's like a genius um but his work is not I mean it's like he'll make comics about like a light switch or something mm -hmm. and then it's like uh how do you advocate for this as like serious work um but it is serious it's beautiful I absolutely agree with that, all of that, 100%. But I have to ask, when you were working on your previous book, mm -hmm. XCC69, did you feel serious? <laughs> no, I mean, I that book is like, I just was like, I knew I wanted to do a graphic novel uh, that was like an actual long comic. And I thought, I'm kind of interested in science fiction. I really like um, Star Trek. Mm -hmm, uh, me too. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I was like, but I could never write science fiction because I think of science fiction 
is like this thing that people have a really, really deep knowledge of. Mm -hmm. And I like don't know that much about it. I just kind of like it. And then I was like, I can make a science fiction book. It's just making shit up. I can do that. Um, and so that was sort of, and then it was, yeah, just, it was a lot, it was definitely kind of like more comedic or something. It wasn't quite as serious as, as rave is. Um, in your CBCQ interview, you say, uh, but also there are many parts of the book that are funny. Uh, that's a fundamental way that I engage with the world. Um, and so that is also fundamental to everything I'll ever do. Why is being funny a fundamental way you engage with the world? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my family, that's like how my family interacts. We're like very repressed and we don't talk about um, feelings or important things that happen in our lives. <laughs> we just talk about humor uh, or we like... I, I just think it's like it's like part of my nature at this point. Um, I also this is a good example is maybe like so a very very beloved close friend of mine and my former partner died in December really unexpectedly and it was awful uh, and it's awful it's the worst thing that's happened in my life it's horrible. I'm um, so sorry. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible. But in dis February um, we had his funeral and which was, I mean, which is also like extremely difficult. Um, his name was Lee McClure. He's a great cartoonist and artist uh, and funny person. Um, we had his funeral and then it was interesting because all these people came in. I came in from the States. My friend Elif came in from Berlin. Other friends came from Montreal or like Vancouver, or whatever, all over the place, came back together. And many of us hadn't seen each other in a long time, in a year or two or 10 or 15 years sometimes. So it was like this kind of amazing reunion in some ways. And I noticed that those of us, particularly those of us who are very, very close to Lee and like just very devastated about it. We're making a lot of jokes. Mm -hmm. uh, like his best friend Neil and I were like kept talking about how we were going to use the funeral to um, launch our MLM, and we were going to use our eulogies to like force people to buy merch from us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and it was like so I don't know. It's like definitely gallows humor or something, but it was like very and Lee would have really liked it. He would have thought that was like extremely funny. Um and and while we were there, Elif, who lives in Berlin now, Elif Sadam, who's like a great artist, um, they were saying that uh, their friends in Berlin kind of sometimes comment on, on how they like deflect intense emotion with jokes or, or mm -hmm. something. But it's not that and I like really relate to that. Like it's just like the way we communicate uh, um, is through humor. And um, and I think it's not sometimes for me, like in therapy or something, I think that can be misinterpreted as like me not having feelings. And I'm like, no, no, I feel things very, very deeply. It's just mm -hmm. like this is how I process it or like how I engage with the world. And I think it's an important tool like for coping with trauma and making trauma bearable and it's also like I think an important tool I think it's a very democratic thing humor like it's uh, a good tool against like authoritarianism and um, you know all of these like I don't know capitalism all these like mega structures that we exist within and can feel impotent in the face of um, I think humor undercuts that a little bit yeah um, no that totally makes sense to me I I feel like the funniest people I know. I mean, I always say many, many moons ago, but I did mm -hmm. give my hand at stand-up in the Montreal mm -hmm. community here. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of what we all 
commiserate on. It's we're mm-hmm. low key the most emotionally raw mm-hmm. humans that we all know um, mm-hmm. that maybe people don't really take into consideration because they just hear us making dumb jokes. Um, <clears throat> I caught the Tracy and Allison reference, by the way, and had a oh. laugh. <laughs> um, yeah. For listeners who don't know, just our uh, our old colleagues at DNQ. Um, they can, there's a Where's Waldo of a reference of them in the book. Um, yeah. Look out for it. Was that just you being, well, you? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I had to put names on, there. there's like a, a door, I don't know, a door buzzer situation, and they had to put names in there, so I just chose names of people I'm friends with, or like, I think my mom's name's on there, and like, um, some other friends, too. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on the church today? On the church? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I'm I like coming out of, yeah, I'm coming from America where, um, you know, very small, uh, right wing religious lobbyist groups have successfully altered the system to, uh, reflect their views and impose laws that are, uh, dis approved of disapproved of by the like vast majority of the American population. So for instance, I was living in Wisconsin where you can no longer get an abortion, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that the majority of Americans want there to be access to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I mean, I'm, it, I also, my own upbringing has like particularly colored my impression of the church. And I think I have like a pretty strong bias against it. Um, I don't think all churches are created equal. I know people who are like religious or like Christian uh, in particular who are really good, kind people who I think have a positive impact on the world. But I also know like, I don't know, my parents were missionaries in Uganda, for instance. Mm-hmm. And the evangelical church in Uganda has had an enormous influence, the, the like American, North American evangelical church. And one of the consequences of that is that now being gay or, or like, um, you know, engaging in like gay sex in Uganda is a capital offense. You can be executed for it. And that's like a, there's a direct line between that and the impact of not my parents in particular, because they only went once and they, it was sort of like this messed up trip. Everything got screwed up. They didn't really have any impact, but the kind of church that they're a part of and the kind of mission trips that they, they participated in. Um, and I think that that's just like completely abhorrent. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, uh, like, I think everyone should be entitled to have their own individual private beliefs and expressions of faith. And I think that's like beautiful and powerful. Um, but when you're actively and intentionally making the world a more dangerous and hostile place for other people who, for no reason, I mean, I think it's like, it's, I'm disgusted by it. I'm horrified by it. Have you had to confront your family about, like, with the publication of this book? Mm-hmm. I know it's well, not exactly autobiographical, yeah. but in the ways that it is. Um, the only person who's, like, really religious in my family is my father uh, and everyone else. My, my mom is believes in God. She's a believer, and she's, like, but she's very private about it, um, and, and she's great. She's, like, I really get along with her. I love her. Um, I mean, I love all of them. I love all of them. Uh, but the only one who's like really religious is my dad and he, um, I don't know, uh, he and I don't really talk about anything substantive, um, because I just can't. Um, I didn't tell my parents when the book came out 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they found out. My mom has read it. Um, my father did find out a few months ago, but no one knows if he's read it, and I'm never going to ask him. Mm-hmm. But it's, mm-hmm. the funny thing is, like, I do think I sort of wrote it with him specifically in mind or people like him where I'm like, you like give a shit about women, give a shit about like the people that you're spending all this time judging and whose bodies you're trying to control and whose behavior you're trying to regulate. Think about them as actual human beings and not just like, like I don't think that church that I grew up in thinks of women and girls as full human beings basically. And you're, you're, you're kind of the most important thing about you is like your chastity or like your ability to like serve men. Um, and I just, I just really desperately want there to be like more empathy and more understanding. Uh, and I don't think I'll get that. Um, but that's, uh, you know, sort of part of what the, the impetus for like making the book was. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of ties into the next question, I guess. Would you say you've lost any sense of faith? Or have you just reinterpreted what that means to you? You know, I'm oh. thinking about the fine line between organized religion and, like, personal belief systems. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I was, like, a strong believer as a young person, like a child and an early teenager. But I am, like, a hardcore atheist now. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. I don't. I have all these friends who are, like, into, I don't know, tarot and, like, astrology and, and crystal, maybe maybe a little bit of crystals here and there. <laughs> and part of me like I dig it I'm like okay it's cool that, that you guys believe in this stuff or like that you get have some interest in it but like I just cannot you know like mm-hmm. I just absolutely I think it's like I don't believe in any of it the only thing I will say like when my friend died and I, I had another really close friend named Bria who died in 2016 who was kind of part of the uh, model for Mariah in the book mm-hmm. um, and when she died and then especially when Lee died, I like started having all this and, and some of our other friends have said things like this too, that like all these sort of this magical thinking started happening in my mind where it was like, I don't intellectually believe this is true, but part of me feels like maybe Lee is like in the ether and can like feel what I'm thinking or, mm-hmm. or like, just cause like I loved him so much and I just want to know that he like knew that. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it's been comforting for me to imagine that he can like feel that somehow or I can communicate with him. And I don't, I also went to a psychic after he died, Mm -hmm. which I also didn't find very helpful, but I like wanted to find helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, yeah, like I intellectually don't believe it, but I, I find some comfort in it. And it makes a lot of sense to me when I think about like religion and the history of religion where it's like. Oh yeah, historically people have had to confront death so much more frequently and in such a, a, a more palpable way than we need to today. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that religion would kind of pop up as an, an answer to death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm like basically just super hardcore atheist. Mm-hmm. But with the spiritual side, I feel like. <laughs> well, maybe like begrudgingly, I'm like, I'm like, uh, like, you know, kind of like speaking into the, into the ether, but. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what would this book have given you in your teenhood? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think my, 
I don't, it's hard for me to say because I was like very, very devout and I wasn't looking for something like this at that point. Mm. And uh, I, it's, I actually like cannot imagine how this would have impacted me to, to read as a teen. Like I might have just been very put off by it, um, you know, depending on what age it hit me at. Um, I think there were a lot of things in the church that felt uncomfortable to me, like sort of being like you're you're like a second, you're a second tier human being, or like your role in life is to serve men or whatever. Like it, it's not a very comfortable thing to like be have reinforced over and over again. Um, but if you're like a very devout believer or something, I could see you sort of like absorbing that and thinking like, okay, well, this is just like, these are the cards I was dealt. Like this just is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I've talked to other, some other people who've read it, who have, who came out of similar backgrounds to me, like really religious cloistered upbringings and then who are now out of it, who found it really meaningful, but I haven't talked to anyone who's like currently in the church and read it mm -hmm. um, maybe like as time goes on you know if people leave that environment maybe i'll hear from people like that but i haven't yet well on the flip side like when you were a kid what text gave you something like this in your teenhood if at all or if there was anything that was close <clears throat> to yeah well so like when i was the teenager like a young teenager, maybe 14 or something, 15, I stopped reading secular books. Uh, or no, no, I mean, not entirely, but like I stopped. For a while, I like didn't watch TV or listen to secular music. And I like mostly read like kind of like religious books for a while, which is like sort of my, uh, my dad only reads like the Bible and like self-published Christian books. Um, mm -hmm. So they did that for a while. And then I sort of like had this, revelation or this thought that um the beliefs that i held were inherited from my parents and like my upbringing and that unexamined faith or you know yeah faith that i'd come to without like kind of thinking critically about it or like arriving to it on my own was like not as meaningful as coming to something of your own free will and so when I was like 15, I decided I would like explore other possible, you know, um, systems of faith or systems of belief. And I went, I don't know, I went to like a synagogue, I went to a Baha'i temple, I was like reading some philosophy and stuff. And I read, I got really into Sartre, um, uh, and I read Being in Nothingness, and I wrote, um, which I'm sure I didn't really understand, but I wrote a little essay about it. Um, when I was maybe 15 and my dad, I really respected my dad when I was a kid. I really looked up to him and, and valued his opinion. And I would like show him my work, uh, so sometimes for school and get his feedback. And so I wrote this essay about existentialism and I showed it to him and then my, he read it and then he was just like, this is bullshit. Uh, and kind of like dismissed it out of hand saying that the whole thing was bullshit. And I had not explained to him this like program of self-discovery that I was on, which in, in full disclosure, I had intended on like completing so that I could then come back to this thing that I believed in the first place. So I was like, mm -hmm. I'm planning on just like reinforcing what I already believed, but like coming to it on my own. Um, but the fact that he was like so dismissive of it and then just sort of like completely 
dismissive of the idea of like criti any kind of criticality, criticality or like critical thinking was like a bit of a canary in the coal mine where I'm like, oh, well, if this like church, if this like um, belief system is like not able to stand up to critical thinking or scrutiny, then like it can't be real. Mm. And I understand faith, like a lot of the things are, you know, they're not empirical. It's like you can't prove the existence of God or whatever empirically. Um, but still, just the idea that it would be so insecure that you can't even, like, read a, a book or something because it mm -hmm. might make you too critical and, like, not believe the thing anymore was very off-putting to me. And that was, like, sort of, that was one of the beginning of, like, you know, the beginnings of, like, sowing a seeds of doubt in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a bit more about the secret spaces of of the teen girls build for each other um in what ways do you think it's a unique experience because mm. that's something that like is in the book copy right secret spaces that teen it girls is, build it's literally in the book copy but it's also literally <laughs> in the book like the relationship yeah. that they develop is you know it, you know it does take a queer angle but in many ways you know, I don't identify as queer, but I've fallen in love with women my whole life because female friendship mm -hmm. is like the most important thing to me. There's mm -hmm. a really special sort of, yeah, relationship that can happen with that, especially as a young girl. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it happens for boys. It makes me sad if it can't happen for <laughs> boys, but... Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know if it happens for boys. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think also like you're, you know... The, one of the things that I wanted to kind of like come across in the book is that there are these forces at play in the church that are really like um, threatening and alienating uh, to young girls, um, but that uh, many of those forces are also kind of at play in the, the world at large to like the kind of like sexual predation or like obsession with girls' bodies and chastity and like all of these like enormous pressures kind of like play out in, in many different areas of society in... Um, in slight variation, but kind of like fundamentally coming down to, I don't know, patriarchy or, or something. Uh, and so I think that relationships between girls, like for me, my relationships with my friends, my, um, uh, uh, were, were just like so incredibly, um, I don't know, like affirming or, uh, like provided some like breathing room or, or something or like even being able to compare notes of so like oh my god this crazy thing happened to me or like this man on the street said this to me and like oh that happened to me too um I think it's really important it's also like I think there's a lot of like kind of I don't know yeah I think it's important as a way of kind of like mm, working through trauma and um and like sharing information um i think about this a lot in like terms of can cancel culture or whatever um or like gossip that there's often mm. you know the sort of backlash against gossip and like you know people are entitled to due process and you shouldn't talk about i don't know sexual assault allegations or whatever without without due process and yet um most of the people i most women i know have experienced some kind of sexual assault uh i would say and mm -hmm. um uh in almost none of the cases that i can think of were there any kind of like consequences legal or societal or, or otherwise um for the the perpetrator um but what we have instead is like 
I don't know, the power of like, um, shine, like shining a light in dark corners or like talking about these things that have happened. So like, hey, this is a thing that can happen or this is, this is like not a safe person to be around or like be careful or whatever. And I think that those networks are really important. Whisper um, networks, yeah. Like a whisper network. So like that's really important. But then also, you know, on the flip side, I think, um, I don't know, like... M- m- like most of my funniest friends are women and like people who I've kind of like most fruitful, creative, collaborative relationships with. And, um, there's like this really kind of like joyful, fun side to it also. Um, I do feel like I'm talking a lot in like kind of like gender binaries, which is like not Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, I I don't really, I don't subscribe to, to that. Like I, I really think gender is a spectrum and that we all kind of like fall alongside it. It's like, I think more, that historically there's been this really kind of like um, in the West, in Canada, this sort of um, uh, really like binarial view of gender and like um, patriarchy kind of enforces that. And I think that's cool that that's being kind of like exploded a little bit. And I hope that it continues to be exploded because I think it does a disservice to everyone. It's not just like women who are suffering under the hands of patriarchy. I also think it sucks for men. And mm-hmm. of course for like, you know, non-binary people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like what you said, I don't know if boys have like friendships like that. I think that that's like a reflection of this like system um, that's in place that really like serves no one well or very very few people and that the younger generations the way that they're sort of like um upending that is like so exciting to Mm -hmm. me and cool and it gives me hope that maybe in the future like we won't be subject to the same kinds of pressures and inequities that um you and I had to deal with growing up Thank you so much, Jess. Um, Listeners, you can go ahead and pick up a copy of Rave at your local indie bookseller. Um, Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.